a rainy one out there today. I don't know if you can tell. Maybe not. But it's rainy. <laughs> anyway, hello and welcome to episode 15 of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. And today we're talking about stress. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. How are you? I hope you're doing well, and I hope that your week is off to a good start, whatever that might mean for you. Did you know that April was Stress Awareness Month? Well, if you didn't, now you do know. You're welcome. Um, If you're somebody who needs a designated month to be aware of your stress, I'd like your life. I'd like to know what it's like. Because some of us are hyper aware of it all year round. So, must be nice. (laughs) No. But, um, But actually, my life has been pretty stressful lately. What is this, therapy? Eh. Well, I'll open up anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been pretty stressed lately. Um, the most recent stressor in my life was being told that my rent is going up by almost $500 a month. Guess how much my income is going up? Not $500 a month. So I need to scramble to find a new place to live, um, which is very difficult to do. Uh, it's just very, the market is crazy as they say. Um, so it's been a very stressful time for me. Uh, keep your fingers crossed for me if you don't mind, because it's, it's hard out here, (laughs) but I'm sure you, the listener, my friend also have some major stressors in your life, right? It could be from work, could be from family or friends or other relationships, Um, even just casually living through a global pandemic or living through impending ongoing environmental crises, 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 you know what I mean? That's stressful. That's a lot. And all of this stress can really take a toll on us. And that's why today we're talking about stress. And that brings us to this week's questions. This week we have three questions. The first one is kind of a quick one. It's just sort of how can we define stress? Sort of like the idea of stress and what it is. The second question is how does stress affect our body? And then the third question is what can we do to minimize the poor or harmful effects of stress on our body. So let's dive into the first question, which is how are we going to define stress? So as human beings, or honestly as living things, because it's not just humans that do this, um, as living beings, we aim to attain and maintain balance. We call this balance homeostasis. It's basically just making sure that everything in our system is 
in check. It's running as it should. There's no errors in the system. It's peaceful. It's comfortable. It's what it is supposed to be. It is baseline. That's our homeostasis. Sometimes something might happen that shifts our system for whatever reason. And in that case, when our balance is disrupted, our homeostasis is disturbed. And this disruption of homeostasis is what causes us stress. Right? Like, so my rent example, I was very used to paying a certain amount, like clockwork, the first of every month, paying a certain amount. I was comfortable with that. That was my baseline. Then building management told me that my rent was increasing by an amount which should be illegal. I digress. That threw off my balance, right? That shifted my system. It affected my status quo. And it stressed me out. That's what stressors are. That's what stressors do, right? Another example, you're hiking. You're enjoying the beautiful scenery. And up ahead on the trail, you see a bear. That bear is disturbing your balance, your balance of safety, your balance of peace. You're walking leisurely up this trail, but now you see a bear and you're thinking, I'm about to get chased and probably mauled. That's disturbing your balance. It's disturbing your, your homeostasis of, of safety. Your safety zone. What do they call it? Your comfort zone. I don't have one of those. I guess other people have comfort zones. Not me, though. I'm never comfortable. <laughs> anyway, there are a couple of different types of stress, right? These examples that I'm giving are kind of weird, but there's examples of like physical stress. If we fall and hurt ourselves, that's a physical stressor on our body. There's emotional and psychological stress if we go through something traumatizing or if we go through a loss. There's environmental stress, right? Um, there's a lot of different types of stress and a lot of different ways to classify and define the stress, right? So we can talk about the magnitude of the stress, how strong the stressor is. Is it a mild stress of like, oh no, I lost my keys or is it like an extreme stress of like this tornado swept my house up off the ground there's sort of degrees of, of stress based on um you know how severe or not severe they are another way to classify stress is by the duration of the stress so there's acute and then there's chronic Acute stress is more quick, it's short-term. Um, so it's sort of like forgetting your keys. It's like, oh, I can just go back to where I left them, you know? And it's not like gonna be a long-term problem. Whereas chronic stress is something that is recurring or lasts for a long period of time. It's a long-term stressor. One last thing I wanna say as we're defining stress is that stress is inevitable. We cannot avoid it. All living things, humans, animals, plants, everything that's alive will experience stress. 
in its life. It's the ability to deal with stress is what makes us living. So if you might think, oh, no, I'm not that stressed, that's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that you don't have or you don't encounter stress every day. Um, Also, tell me how to be you. (laughs) Um, All right. So hopefully that kind of covers the definition of stress and kind of what we mean by stress when we study it. The next question is asking, how does stress affect our body? And sort of like the stress response within our body. So in the show description, the episode description, there is a citation for a review called Stress and Disorders of the Stress System by Dr. George P. Chirosos. Um, And in this review, he describes stress as being mediated by what he calls the stress system. The stress system is partially located in the central nervous system, which is um, basically the brain and the spinal cord. That is the central nervous system. He says that there are also um, parts of the body that are outside of the central nervous system that are a part of the stress system, and he refers to that as the peripheral stress system. Um, Sort of like the peripheral nervous system is not necessarily the brain and the spinal cord, but it's like the nerves everywhere else in your body. So the stress system or the peripheral stress system are organs that are outside of the central nervous system that contribute to the stress response. And we'll kind of get into that more in a little bit. Um, Another thing that he mentions in this review, he discusses acute versus chronic stress and how they might cause different they might cause different symptoms um, differently. Different symptoms differently. That makes no sense, but I'm rolling with it. Um, so I mentioned acute stress is more like short-term stressors, right? Crap, I forgot my keys. That's like pretty, you know, mild acute stressor. Um, but in some cases, acute stress can result in something like a panic attack. If someone is more predisposed to having panic attacks or other anxiety disorders, um, it's possible that an acute stressor, a short-term stressor could be severe enough to trigger a panic attack in that person. Um, there are other types of acute stress that can cause allergic manifestations like asthma, Um, or eczema. Acute stress is also associated with migraines and GI problems. So those are sort of some symptoms that are associated with acute stressors. Chronic stressors or long-term stressors, like the homeowner whose house got destroyed by a tornado, um, those stressors are longer term in that they're not necessarily recurring, but they are lasting um, and have, you know, lasting impact. Um, but chronic stress doesn't always have to be that severe, right? A chronic stressor could be having a toxic environment at work or school, um, you know, having a toxic relationship. 
Um, doing a PhD is a chronic stressor. That wasn't in the paper. That was from experience. Um, <laughs> you know, chronic stressors, they don't have to be life-threatening. Um, it's just something that throws your system off balance for a long period of time. And chronic stress often results in different symptoms than uh, acute stress in that the symptoms are also more longer lasting. So for example, anxiety and depression might be a result of chronic stress. Cardiovascular issues like hypertension, metabolic issues like type 2 diabetes, um, sleep disorders like insomnia, or excessive daytime sleepiness, which honestly explains a lot explains all the naps that I took in my cubicle in grad school, despite copious amounts of caffeine. <laughs> um, so that's one topic that the review covers is sort of like acute versus chronic and like the different types of symptoms that come from those types of stressors. Next, um, I kind of want to get into the stress pathway and how our stress system in the terms of Dr. Chirosos um, deal with stress and how stress triggers the stress system. So we're going to start in the locus ceruleus and the autonomic norepinephrine centers in the brain. So the locus ceruleus is a part of your brain that is responsible for a fight or flight response. It releases hormones like epinephrine, adrenaline, which are sort of like two of the same hormones, and norepinephrine and noradrenaline are also hormones that all sort of do the same thing. Um, they all promote this fight or flight response. They have um, peripheral effects, like they cause our pupils to dilate, they cause our heart to pump blood faster, they cause our breathing rate to increase, and all of these things are kind of associated with the fight or flight response, which you probably have heard of. So the locus ceruleus is sort of like, he's the one that pulls the trigger of like, oh no, something's going wrong, something's happening, let's fight or let's fight. <laughs> let's fight or let's fight. Or that's, that's the only option. We're gonna fight or we're gonna fight. Let's fight or let's flee. That's what I meant to say. Um, and he, the, the locus release does that by releasing these hormones that cause the peripheral effects that allow us to fight or flee. Um, yeah, the locus ceruleus. Also known as the first and middle name of my firstborn son, if I ever have one. Locus ceruleus. People will be like, what's his name? Lucas? No, locus. Locus Ceruleus. And then I'll know that that person who doesn't know that his name is Locus, they're not a listener of Sam's Planning Science, and they're no friend of mine. Get away from my son. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Am I? Um, for the nobody that asked, the name of my non-existent hypothetical daughter is Amygdala. Amy for short, of course. Anyway, okay, so the locus ceruleus, <laughs> the locus ceruleus plays an important role in the stress response. 
you perceive a threat, your you perceive a threat, i.e. you're informed that your rent is going up. And your first reaction is sort of this like panic of like, oh no, my savings account. <laughs> right? You panic. That panic is because your Logos Ruleus releases epinephrine and norepinephrine. Um, you might feel your heart start pumping. You might feel your palms get sweaty. Your knees might get weak and your arms might get heavy. You know. Um, that's the fight or flight response, right? That's all of the sympathetic nervous system um, letting you know that you there's a perceived threat. You might be in danger, right? With this initial release of epinephrine from the locus ceruleus, that epinephrine that is released causes other hormones um, to be released from the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is a tiny nugget in your forebrain, a little part of your brain that also releases hormones. Um, And two hormones that the hypothalamus releases that play a role in the stress response are arginine vasopressin, or AVP, and corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH. So these hypothalamic hormones, CRH and AVP, and the norepinephrine from the brainstem activate each other, sort of like a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours sort of role they have going on there, where the epinephrine turns on the CRH AVP, and then the AVP turns on the epinephrine, and then it's just like a a never-ending cycle. Um, Well, not never-ending, because it does end eventually, but um, other outside things have to end it, which we'll get into right now. Um, But yeah, once the loop is activated, once the loop is turned on, it's um, the systems work together to create the stress response. And the stress response works closely with the amygdala. Not my daughter, not my daughter. The amygdala, the part of the brain that's responsible for processing fear, anger, and anxiety, of course. Um, so the stress response is very closely entwined with fear, anxiety, because you know if you have a perceived threat, you need to like be afraid of it in order to know that it's a threat. Right? If we saw a bear on the trail and we weren't afraid of the bear, we would be like, oh my God, cute. And we would go towards it and we would die. Right? So there's, it's important that the stress response is closely working with the amygdala so that it, um, we accurately perceive th- threats and are afraid of them as we should be. Um, the stress response also works closely with dopamine reward systems, which I think we've talked about on a few episodes, sort of mentioned, glossed over. Um, but some of the dopamine reward systems have connections to areas of the brain, like the frontal and the prefrontal lobe. Those areas of the brain are more responsible for cognitive, like um, not cognitive, what's the word I'm thinking of, like executive decision-making type of thing. Um, so they can sort of process the threat and ideally can turn it off if needed, right? Like if I see something on the trail that I think looks like a bear, 
but then it turns out it's just a tumbleweed, the frontal part of my brain is going to be like, no, idiot, because that's how I talk to myself, really mean. No, idiot, that's not a bear, it's a tumbleweed. Don't be scared. And then my stress response will go down. Um, so effectively, some parts of the dopamine reward system can shut off the stress response if it is appropriate to do so. Um, another way to shut off those stress response um, is from input from the hippocampus. So a hippocampus is one of the memory centers in the brain. Um, but some activity from the hippocampus can also turn off the stress response as well. All right, so both of the hypothalamic hormones, the corticotropin-releasing hormone, CRH, and the arginine vasopressin, AVP, um, both of those act to turn on or activate the hypothalamic pituitary axis, or the HPA, which is another one that we've talked about in a previous episode, I think. I forget which one. Maybe the seasonal affective disorder one? Maybe the sleep one? One of those. Um, but one of the main goals of the hypothalamic pituitary axis, or the HPA, um, pituitary adrenal axis, sorry, HPA axis, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Um, one of the main goals of this axis is to release cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone. So cortisol has peripheral, perif, peripheral, <laughs> cortisol has peripheral effects. So the release of this hormone cortisol leads to downstream effects of other hormones. So this includes reducing the activity of growth hormone, for example, um, also reducing activity of sex hormones like the luteinizing hormone and testosterone. And it can also have an effect on thyroid hormones. Thyroid hormones are very important in metabolic, like metabolism, metabolic functions. So cortisol, too much cortisol being released can mess up the hormones of other systems. And kind of going off of the thyroid hormone slash metabolism thing. Elevated cortisol levels have also been associated with metabolic syndromes, including diabetes. So this is sort of just like a well-established relationship between cortisol and peripheral hormones that don't have a direct influence on the stress response, but are influenced by downstream effects of the stress response. So Summary of that section is basically the stress response, specifically cortisol by the release of CRH AVP, can lead to peripheral effects outside of the brain. So that was sort of a brief but hopefully clear, concise overview of the hormones, the endocrinology, if you will, of the stress response in our bodies. Um, but now let's talk about some of the stress effectors and like the effect that the stress response can have on your body and different bodily functions. So 
primarily in the moment of stress, stress can affect the sleep-wake cycle. So in a moment of stress, your desire to sleep should be suppressed and your arousal or wakefulness should be stimulated. And that's sort of like a natural evolutionary response, right? Like it's important for survival to be active and to not rest under stress. The last thing you need while getting chased by a bear is to take a nap, right? So like that sort of, that whole system, sleep-wake cycle is affected when you are under stress. In a similar vein, the stress response also inhibits and decreases the function of the gastrointestinal or digestive system. Um, when priority number one is not getting eaten, not getting murdered, you don't really have to worry about what's going on in your intestines, you know? Your intestines aren't really going to help you much when you need to run away from a predator. So the body says, you know what, let's focus on what we need to focus on in order to survive in this moment. And in this moment, we don't need to digest, we need to fight or flee. Got it right that time. Um... <laughs> The immune system is also affected by the stress response, um, but these are words pulled directly from the Stress and Stress Disorders Review paper, saying, quote, stress has complex effects on the immune system, unquote. Um, and I'm no immunologist, so understanding these complex effects is, well, it's complex. Um, but from my understanding, one way that stress affects the immune system is that some of the byproducts of the stress response, um, which I didn't really get into, but things like glucocorticoids, which are basically tiny little molecules that are, um, byproduct, byproducts of the stress response. These glucocorticoids suppress the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, and these pro-inflammatory cytokines are molecules whose job it is to recruit the immune system to respond to a foreign antigen with inflammation. Um, so we're talking about the immune system again, two weeks in a row. For someone who's not an immunologist, you would think I wouldn't do this, but here I am talking about it again. Um, but yeah, so the presence of stress, there are glucocorticoids, and these glucocorticoids turn off the pro-inflammatory cytokines, and that reduces the inflammatory response of the immune system. So what this means is that we might not be able to fight off or recover from illnesses or ailments as easy as easily if we are stressed. Um, if we're not able to have a, an appropriate inflammatory response because the stress byproducts are turning off the inflammatory response, that could make us more susceptible potentially to either getting sick or staying sick for longer. That's what I gather from this and I hope that that's a correct assessment. I could be wrong, probably am, but hey. We're trying. <laughs> Another way that stress affects um, 
our body is the effect of stress on metabolism and the cardio-respiratory systems. So cardio meaning heart, respiratory meaning lungs. Um, under stress, in the fight-or-flight response, I mentioned that one of the peripheral effects, so outside of the central nervous system, um, one of the effects is increased heart rate um, and also increased blood pressure. And in some ways, this is good. This is very helpful, right? We need more blood pumping when we are in a potential danger, a potentially dangerous situation um, because it gets more oxygen to our tissues, right? Our blood pumping brings nutrients like oxygen to our tissues. Our brain needs oxygen to function well, right? To like analyze situations well. Should I fight? Should I flee? Our muscles also need oxygen in order to be able to move, like run away if needed. So in, in some ways, the increased heart rate and the increased blood pressure is good because it's setting us up in a situation in which we might be in danger to best survive, to best analyze the situation and survive. However, this is not always good if the conditions are prolonged. So if we have a more chronic stress situation, our body is constantly thinking we're under stress. It's going to constantly have like an, it'll constantly overwork our heart, our blood vessels. And that's not good, right? That's not healthy. It's not going to make our heart super strong or anything. It's going to overwork it. It's going to make it tired. Um, there have been studies that have shown that chronic stress can predict the occurrence of coronary heart disease in people who have work-related stress. Um, so people who, have work, uh, people who have work-related stress are more likely to have a coronary heart disease event, like a heart attack. Um, and even acute stressors, like short-term emotional stress, can act like a trigger of cardiac events in people who already have coronary heart disease, like, um, you know, high blood pressure. So that's something to consider that there are potentially bad effects of stress um, in terms of, like, metabolism and, and cardiovascular systems. One last system that I'm going to talk about before we move on to the last question is um, the reward and fear systems in the brain. So I mentioned briefly that some of the stress response is sort of tied into the amygdala, um, which is responsible for processing fear. Um, it also plays a big role in anxiety and other psychiatric conditions. Acute stressors can trigger anxiety attacks or panic attacks in people who are predisposed to anxiety disorder and to panic disorder. And long-term, chronic stress is also associated with major depressive disorder, which is also known as clinical depression. So chronic stressors over time can lead to um, neuropsychiatric, cognitive, or executive dysfunctions in the brain. Um, studies have also shown that increased levels of corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, one of those hypothalamic hormones that we talked about earlier, um, increased levels of CRH are associated with neuropsychiatric disorders, including anxiety, depression, 
alcoholism, eating disorders, and PTSD in children. So it's not that CRH will directly cause these conditions, um, just that CRH levels that result from higher levels of stress are typically higher in these conditions. Um, so not necessarily causality, but they sort of coexist, suggesting that stress plays some sort of role, whether it be cause or effect, um, in neuropsychiatric disorders here. So in all, while the stress response is good and plays a super important role in keeping us alive in the face of dangerous threats, it can also have negative impacts on our health if left unchecked for too long. And that brings us to our third question, because all of these conditions sound really kind of bad, right? Like stress is associated with issues with sleep, issues with our immune system, our cardiovascular system, neuropsychiatric conditions. Um, but you know me. I'm an optimistic gal. I don't want to end it on a scary note. Um, also, I have an avoidant attachment style, so I want to talk about what we can do to avoid some of these uh, harmful effects of stress. So our third question here is what can we do to minimize the poor effects of stress? We're going to talk about one study in particular, um, just for time purposes, but there were several studies that I found that talked about additional stress management techniques like exercise is one of them. Um, but today we're going to focus on something that we can all do, regardless of age or physical ability or whatever. We're going to talk about mindfulness meditation. The study that we're looking at, um, which is cited below in the episode description, um, was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in July of 1992. So this paper is one year older than I am. Hey, oh. Um, by the author Jean Christeller. Jean Christeller. Maybe they're French. Um, and colleagues. Uh, it's called the Effectiveness of Mediation-Based Stress Reduction Program in the Treatment of Anxiety Disorders. This study was run alongside an outpatient program for stress reduction and relaxation that involved, quote, the intensive training in mindfulness meditation, um, specifically for people who uh, had neuropsychiatric disorders and were hoping to cope with stress. The objectives of this study were really just to see how this stress management technique of mindfulness meditation affected the patient's anxiety levels. So what they did was they had a repeated measures design where they took many measures in the same person um, or in the same people before and after treatment to see how effective the treatment of the uh, meditation was at treating patients suffering from anxiety disorder. So the paper here had 22 participants, and they included only those who were formally diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. The participants were evaluated a few times throughout the study, first at recruitment, so when they joined the study, when they signed on to say, yeah, I'm interested in this study. Then a few weeks later, right before they started the treatment program, and that was called pre-treatment, 
then again immediately following the program called post-treatment, and then at a follow-up three months after they finished the treatment. So the treatment lasted eight weeks, and it consisted of weekly two-hour classes um, and one eight-hour meditation retreat uh, during the sixth week. But during the weekly two-hour courses, participants practiced a range of different formal and informal meditation techniques and mindfulness. Um, and then three months after the participants completed the treatment, they completed the follow-up measures. Now, what exactly were they measuring at each of these time points? The participants answered questionnaires that measured their anxiety and depression levels. So in the field of psychology, psychiatry, um, there are a couple of different inventory scales. So one is called the Beck inventory and one is called the Hamilton rating. So Beck and Hamilton each have a measure of anxiety and depression. So the Beck anxiety inventory and the Beck depression inventory and the Hamilton rating for anxiety and the Hamilton rating for depression. Um, so from these, they were able to determine and kind of get a number, kind of rate on a scale, how severe someone's anxiety and depression was at all of these different time points. Um, also at all of these different time points, they asked the participants the frequency and severity of the anxiety attacks that they had one week before. So the week leading up to the measurement, they asked the participants, how severe and how many anxiety attacks have you had in the last seven days? Um, so that was another measure that they acquired in the study. Um, and then they did some fun stats to, to look at how much of a difference the, uh, the treatment made. At pre-treatment, so before they started with their meditation course, um, subjects ranged from moderate to severe anxiety on the Hamilton anxiety score and the Beck score. And they ranged from mild to moderate on the Beck and Hamilton depression scores. 13 people, so about half of the 22 participants, um, reported having at least one panic attack in the week prior to starting the treatment. Um... So looking from the time between recruitment to right before they start the meditation class, the participants had no changes in their mood scores, no significant changes in their mood scores. However, from the pre-treatment to the post-treatment measures, so across those eight weeks, there was a significant reduction in the anxiety and depression scales, with the ham depression scores falling from about 31 to 24 and the Hamilton anxiety scores falling from about 26 to 17. It's like 8 to 10 points. Not bad. Um, and almost more excitingly, at the end of the treatment, so the post-treatment, the number of people who reported panic attack, at least one panic attack in the last week, fell from 13 to 5. More than half of the people stopped having panic attacks after doing regular mindfulness meditation. Um, from post-treatment to three months follow-up, there was no significant change um, 
So like during that maintenance period, there was no significant change at between the depression and anxiety scores. Um, 91% of the people during that maintenance, that follow-up period, said that they had been keeping up with their practice of their stress-reducing technique at least one time a week. Um, and the improvement in the frequency of panic attacks and the severity of panic, atta panic attacks also stayed low between post-treatment and, um, and follow-up, meaning that like when you continue with your mindfulness meditation, um, you're more likely to keep your frequency of panic attacks low. There are some limitations to this study, though. Um, I mean, obviously, it's 30 years old. There's probably a lot more that we can do today to solidify and improve this study. Um, like, for example, not all subjects had the same type of questionnaires. Like, some had only Beck, but everybody had Hamilton. But there's just some sort of, like, holes in the experimental design. Also, the sample was not an even split between um, the sexes. So um, there was five men and 17 women, so it's possible that maybe there's some sort of sex difference there potentially, um, that they, are, they don't have enough, uh, a big enough sample size to investigate. Um, but yeah, we know that stressors can trigger panic attacks. And this study suggests that mindfulness meditation may be a way to help manage our stress in order to avoid or reduce the frequency of panic attacks and potentially other stress-induced ailments. So it's very exciting to see. I actually do um, meditation. I try to do it every day, um, but I definitely do it at least three times a week. And uh, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it. Maybe one day I'll do a whole meditation episode because um, there's a lot of, you know, people say it helps with your focus, it helps with your working memory, all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, if you're someone who is particularly stressed and someone who is more predisposed to panic attacks uh, when you are stressed, then maybe you should try mindfulness meditation. It might help you. Cool. All right, I think that's all for this week. Yeah, I think that's it. I didn't write a sign-off. That's kind of... That was sort of my pull-it-all-together thing, was just to recommend meditating. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, that's all for this week. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. That's SamSplaining, S-C-I. Um, you can connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam Splain to you, ask away. Um, please ask a question. because It's not like I'm running out of ideas or anything, but it's getting to the point where I'm like, Maybe I should do an episode on why asparagus makes our pee smell. Because I've always wondered that, and I want to learn that. But do you all want to learn that? Probably not. I don't know. If you do, ask it. Or if there's any other question that you want to learn about, ask it. Otherwise, we're going to spend the next episode talking about asparagus pee. And if we do, it's on you. Okay? Okay.
I'm putting it out there. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. (laughs) I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.